Welcome to this week's Who the Folk podcast. I'm Lonnie Goldsmith, the editor of TC Jew Folk. This week, I'm very excited to sit down with Kirsten Delegard, the co-founder of the Mapping Prejudice Project at the University of Minnesota, to talk about her work and how it relates to the series of articles on the Jewish departure from North Minneapolis running on TC Jew Folk. We talk about how the project got started, her family connection to restricted covenants in Minneapolis, and what she hopes people take away from the whole project on this week's Who the Folk podcast. Kirsten Delegard, co-founder of the Mapping Prejudice Project, welcome to the Who the Folk podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I, I've been really looking forward to talking to you. Um, in first, I you know I don't feel the need to butter up my guests all, but you know right from the right from the top. But if people haven't checked out the Mapping Prejudice website, it's mappingprejudice.org. It is a fantastic project that you helped start uh, at the University of Minnesota. Um, I guess for starters, what led you down this road with, with creating this, uh, I guess, starting in 2016? Yeah. Well, I would, I would rewind a little bit um, before 2016, of course. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, just, I would say what, what launched Mapping Prejudice was really this, this question that I had, um, which was, you know, I'm an, I'm a Minneapolis native. I grew up in Minneapolis. I grew up in Minneapolis, I would say sort of in what I'm going to call the salad years of Minneapolis, the Mary Tyler Moore years of Minneapolis, when, you know, Minneapolis is on national television as this model, you know, model metropolis. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's just, if you look back on the press that Minneapolis got in the 1970s, so this is, this is my childhood, everyone holds it up as this wonder of this urban miracle in a lot of ways. And that's, and that's what I was fed growing up. <laughs> um, and, you know, so I, but, you know, like a lot of young Minnesotans, when I was 18, I'm like, I'm getting out of here and I'm never coming back because, um, you know, I'm going to go to more interesting places, places um, that have real problems, right? <laughs> um, and so I left and I, I went to school on the East Coast. Um, I married a guy from New York um, and I figured that sealed the deal that I would never, ever come back to Minneapolis. Um, we went and lived um, a bunch of different places, including North Carolina. And, um, and then then when I had my daughter, um, I suddenly turned to um, my husband and said, we, we have to live in Minneapolis. I have to raise my kids as Minnesotans. And he was like, you could have mentioned this to me at some point. <laughs> like, uh, sorry, I'm giving you the long, the long, okay. the long response here. Um, and you know, and I think this is a very common story for a lot of, for a lot of Minnesotans that we leave yep, and then we come back. So I, so I ended up dragging um, my husband and my two kids back here after 20 years. And, and I had all these, these new lenses to see my hometown with at that point. Um, so um, I had all this training as a historian and, and I, and so, so here, here's um, to give you like the real deep backstory. Um, my husband is a journalist and he said, okay, okay, fine. <laughs> I'll be a Minnesotan. Our kids can be Minnesotans. But if you're going to, you know, if we're going to live in Minneapolis, I better understand the history of this place. You know, if I'm going to be writing and, and I said, oh yeah, no problem. I will. He was like, so you got to get me like the big, you know, the main books on the history of Minneapolis. And I went, so I was like, yeah, I can do a lit review for you. You know, no problem. And, um, and I went looking and I, what I discovered is that there had been like no synthetic history written of Minneapolis since 1941. Um, and I was just astonished that such a interesting city 
Um, and the more I dug into it, the more interesting <laughs> the history was that there had been no, you know, like very little actually was written about right. Minneapolis. And um, so that was like the first, the first piece. And then the more I, you know, more I reintegrated my life, my professional life back into my new home, I really realized there was this major dissonance, which was this myth that I had been raised with about Minneapolis growing up. And then the reality of living in Minneapolis um, in the early 21st century, um, which is that Minneapolis is a great place to live if you're white, and it's a terrible place to live if you're a person of color. How did that happen in a, in a city that um, was so proud of um, bringing to a national stage politicians who actually made their careers as, you know, as civil rights activists? Um, so, that, so that was basically like that question is mm -hmm. what has driven Mapping Prejudice. So, um, I, so, you know, I, I was intrigued by that question. I did a lot of archival research on, on that. And I really didn't want to just have that conversation in, you know, in a traditional way with a certain small number of scholars. I wanted to really engage as many Minneapolitans and Minnesotans as possible in that, in that, um, in that question. And that was what led us, led me to corral my colleagues into creating um, a project that used primary sources to um, provoke, you know, new realizations about the past and getting people to really engage actively with the visual visualization of structural racism in Minneapolis. And that's what Mapping Prejudice says. You know, I, it's interesting because obviously this project has been around for several years now. And as we're talking here in early September, we are three and a half months after the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And the, the idea of structural racism in the city of Minneapolis, I think for most people, they were awakened to that fact on Memorial Day this year. And yeah. in the and in the protests and everything that took place in the aftermath of it. But obviously your research and all of the work you put in shows that it's actually been happening for a century or more. Yeah. How I guess before getting into the, you know, how, because I don't know if we can actually get into the how this happened, but I guess how did people react when you first sort of held this mirror in front of them of, uh, Hey guys, this, we're, we're not all that great. Yeah. It depends on who you are. Mm. Right. So, um, so when I, when we started doing this work, so the premise of mapping prejudice is that we um, we've used digital tools to comb through the, the millions and millions of property records um, in, in Hennepin County and now in Ramsey County and we're expanding from there um, to, to identify the records that have this kind of this racist language. So racial covenants, which say um, this premises, this piece of land can never be occupied by someone who's defined as not white. And we can get into that whole question. Um, and then we, we put that up on a, on a, um, we, we use computers to narrow those documents down. We put it on a, on a crowdsourcing platform. And then we have regular people read those documents, right? Um, and and the, the way people react to that really depends on what their, what their personal experience is, what their family experience is. So for a lot of, like you said, for a lot of white 
Minnesotans, a lot of white Minneapolitans, there's, there's this shock and, and horror when they, when they encounter those documents. They say, I never knew. I had no idea. I, I never knew. So at first I found, I found that reaction to be, um, you know, uh, somewhat gratifying. Like as a teacher, I'm like, great, you know, like I've taught people something that yeah. they didn't know. Um, but after a while, I have to say, like, the more I heard that, the more frustrated I got, because the more you know about this history, the more you realize there's nothing secret about this. Like there are, there are literally um, hundreds of books that have been written about this. There's movies, there's, um, you know, poetry, there's artwork, there's Supreme Court cases, there's newspaper coverage. Um, which explains why when black people read those same documents and they have their own family experience, there's one of two reactions. One is for young people, especially, they say, my mom and my grandma always told me about these things. I never believed. I never, I never, I didn't know what they were talking about. So for like the younger generation, yeah. it's, it's validating to some degree. I would say for older people, that a lot of times they react sometimes they say well thank you for validating you know my experience but sometimes they are really angry they're like yeah i could have told you this why are you doing all this research on something that my family has known right <laughs> and been we've been talking about like we've been dealing with this for decades um and 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 you know it's very logical that these are the reactions that i would have gotten but it wasn't quite what I expected as a white person, you know, like coming into this work, I expected there to be more sort of angry white people being like, Oh, this is, you're just making this up. We really don't get much of that. And that surprises me. I kind of thought you would get more of that. That's I I thought that that when I sort of asked the question, I expected that to be the answer, but I'm, I'm glad at least it wasn't. And a couple of times when we have, we're like, okay, you know, that's fine. Why don't you just open up this platform and you can read some deeds and documents and then just tell us what you think. Mm -hmm. Like if you think we're making it up and it's kind of, I mean, that's, that's the power of these documents is that they are really hard to misrepresent or misunderstand. Oh, for sure. It's, it's hard to look away from. It's hard I mean, I get, I think anybody who denies it after looking at the documents, clearly just, they either didn't really read it or they just see what they want to see in it. Yeah. We haven't actually had anyone. Oh, that's, oh, <laughs> that's know, good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Thankfully. cause you can't, Thankfully, yeah. I mean, or, or maybe they, you know, they are, they, you know, it's, I'm preaching to the choir. Um, but yeah. I mean, there, there are people who will say, why are you stirring up the pot? This has been illegal since 1968. What difference does it make? Why don't we, we don't need to know about this history. We just got to, we got to, you know, focus on the present. Like this has been illegal. You're just, you know, dredging up old stuff. I mean, I think you could also, you know, come back with the question of why was it, you know, why did it take until 68 for it to become illegal? (laughs) Like who thought it was okay before that? Right. Right. (laughs) And yes, there's that. Yeah. And, and actually, and then yes, then there's many, there is many responses to that. (laughs) Certainly. But it's, you know, it's interesting because the, and I think the more all of us, not just, you know, me personally, but I think a lot of, at least a lot of people who have, you know, wanted to, to read more and learn more um, about people of color, especially in the Twin Cities, especially in the wake of George Floyd. I think, you know, I think this is that, I mean, that might be the first introduction, you know, the, the, George Floyd might have been the first introduction to a lot of people about what systemic racism really means. And, you know, and you, 
I don't think a lot of people think of it this way, but you know, where you have like generational wealth comes from owning real estate and be able to being able to pass that on. And so many people of color who were restricted from that in those deeds for, you know, generations don't, don't get the same opportunities. And this is how you have this, and this is how you have the disparities Mm -hmm. that Minnesota, unfortunately is known for. Right. Notorious. Yeah. I say, yeah. I mean, this is where I always use my own family history um, to illustrate, which Mm -hmm. is that, um, my grandparents were new Americans. Um, they were immigrants and mm-hmm. they, um, you know, they, they certainly came from, they didn't, they didn't start life, let's put it this way, with a lot of advantages, either in the way of education or wealth. And, um, you know, two of my grandparents were orphaned at early ages and, you know, they were really on their own from the time they were very young. And, but, um, but even though they were new Americans, they were seen as white. So both sets of my grandparents um, were able to buy houses in Minneapolis near Lake Nokomis in 1942. And, and they both bought houses in areas that were blanketed by racial covenants. My, my, my paternal grandparents, they had a racial covenant on their house. And, um, and those areas of the city have um, appreciated, the real estate has appreciated there at a greater rate than um, certainly than areas that didn't have racial covenants and 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 um you know my in the case of my father's parents my grandfather lived in the same house until the 1980s and when he died um our family sold the house and distributed the profits to all the grandchildren um and that's the piece that's the capital that i was able to use to put a down payment on my house in south minneapolis which i could not otherwise have afforded on my you know, generous historian salary. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I had that. Um, and and that's, that's how intergenerational wealth is built, right? Um, and that's how you end up with a 10 to one racial wealth gap in the United States. And, and so we start with racial covenants in terms of the, the work that we do, the presentation. And I, and I draw a direct line from that to this racial wealth gap, um, to these other these disparities um but the racial wealth gap um you know it's direct it's directly linked to these how to these restrictions on housing right um it's 10 to 1 and most american most white americans a don't believe there is a racial wealth gap and b have no idea that it's 10 to 1 i had no idea that it was 10 to 1 i knew there was a gap but but the i mean in the gap it feels obvious if you're if you're just paying attention to what's going on around you, but at that number, that is, I mean, it's uh, shocking is the only word, right? Yeah. It's 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 I mean, appalling also I think works. Yeah. But you know this this is you know becomes the root of so many of the challenges I think that that we face as a country right now that have been dredged up. I mean. George Floyd being killed had nothing, I mean, I say it had nothing to do with it. This was going on before him and it has mm-hmm. gone on since. Yeah. But hopefully people are seeing it, in it through a new frame now. Yeah. Right. You know, so these police killings, um, obviously, yeah, they've been going on. 
they've been, yeah, you know, I mean, there's a whole database. The Star Tribune created a whole database of police killings. It's not, this is not yeah, a secret, no, right? No, yeah. No. But I mean, just here, not to mention across the country, but I hope that people are now seen as, as not a, you know, one bad actor, right. right? But seeing it as a product of the, of these structures. Yeah. Um, and, and I feel like, you know, we have to give props to um, the activists who've been working in this realm, you know, that people, when they went out on the streets after Memorial Day, I think people had some new frames to understand this violence yeah. through. And, you know, at these, in these very, very, very challenging times, I think that's what gives me hope that there is, <laughs> there have been some narrative shifts, right? Kirsten and I are going to talk about the Jewish community and its connection to racial covenants and redlining after this message from our sponsor this week, Milovitz, Gallup, and Milovitz. I am Alan Milovitz, and I have been helping injury victims for over 30 years. If you have been a victim of an injury or accident, don't sign anything until you have spoken to an attorney. You could be signing away your right to fair compensation. If you have been injured, call us. We want to help. We will make a time to talk about your case. You can reach Milovitz, Gallup, and Milovitz at 763-560-0000. That's 763-560-0000. I, I, w- I hope so. I, I, I would think, you know, think and hope that that's the case. You know, part of this, yes, this is our regular Monday podcast, but the timing of being able to talk to you is great. We are in the middle of the series that you have spoken with uh, one of our, uh, our regular contributors, Lev Gringos, for that he has spearheaded this uh, very lengthy four-part series on uh, sort of the Jewish uh, Jewish departure from North Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and you know, I think as I had heard the story, there there were you know, and reading. Lev stuff before publication really uh, sort of a slap in the face a bit to me in terms of, you know, my preconceived notions mm-hmm. um, that, you know, I had, as I had heard the stories, Jews were as affected by redlining yeah. as African-Americans and people of color. And it turns out that that's not exactly the story. No, that's right. And that was um, that was kind of that was shocking. I, yeah. I really thought that you know we sort of as the stories were, you know I had heard them we were sort of all in it together, and it turns out yeah. not exactly the case. And that's sort of part of what you've mm-hmm. uh, it, you know part of what has come out of your research. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I was talking about like people's reactions to mm-hmm. the covenants and people's reactions to mapping prejudice, and I, you know, I the reason I know about racial covenants is because of um, Minneapolis Jews in my life who told me about racial covenants. Mm-hmm. You know, so the Jewish community in Minneapolis, which of course was known as the anti-Semitism capital of the of the United States in the you know in the 1940s, that has a long uh, dark history, let's put it that way, mm-hmm. um, with anti-Semitism, I fully expected to see that anti-Semitism um, articulated in these racial covenants. And that's what everyone told me I would find. Um, and so when we started looking at the documents and found that actually only 1% of the covenants that we identified um, named Jews specifically, I mean, that's, it's, it's 
it's more complicated than that, but you know that, um, but that 100% of the covenants named black people. You know, that it, it was clear that this was not so straightforward. It wasn't like Jews and Blacks were equally targeted by this. Um, I was, we were, you know, our project was shocked. The team was shocked to find that. And, and you know, and, and there's, and yeah, so I'll let you ask more questions. I guess, no, no, I, I, no. I dive into this. No, dive away. Because I, I do think it's interesting because, you know, again, I, I, like I said, as I'd heard the stories, it was, you, you know, I'm not going to say it was, you know, maybe the Jews were, you know, like, again, I heard it from other Jews. I didn't know, yeah. you know, it wasn't that we were placing ourselves in, you know, in that boat necessarily. Um, it just sort of, that was just the narrative. Um, and it, it yeah. makes, it makes me wonder where, I guess, where the idea of that narrative came from in the first place. Yeah. Well, I mean, I th I think, and I and I don't mean to, um, I don't, I I don't want to like um, discount or to um, what's the word? I mean, I think I think some of that idea that we were all in this it comes from a place of social solidarity. It's mm -hmm. a positive. It's a positive thing, right? Yeah. It's this sense of um, empathy, you know, and and I. And that that's really important and that people, it's a recognition that Jews and Blacks did live on the near North side together and we're equally, you know, we're both um, uh, considered not desirable neighbors, let's put it that way, by yeah. a lot of white, white Minneapolitans. So, and, and, you know, North High School was Jews and, you know, Jews and Blacks, right? And, um, you know, so that, so that's a, like, that's a real recognition of real, you know, of history. Um, but th then it gets more complicated because Jews have always been conditionally white, right? And so sometimes mm -hmm. Jews are seen as white and obviously Jews are not a monolithic group either. You know, you have German Jews, you have Eastern European Jews, you have Jews of color, you know, it's like, right. it's, it's, so, so it's not, and, and that, you know, that's always been going on in terms of who can, pa who can pass for white and who can't pass for white. And, um, and, and so all that was in play when um, the Jewish community organized in 1919 to get a law passed in Minnesota that made it illegal to discriminate in real estate transactions on the basis of religion. And so it was at that moment where you have that specific language um, that, referenced people of the Semitic race or, or Jews mm -hmm. um, that drops out of the covenants. And, and, and the language then starts moving more towards where it, it ends up after World War II, only people of the Caucasian race, right? Yeah. And so that's like, who's, so who's Caucasian? Who's white? Who's not white? And the way people saw that, there was no, you know, because race is a construct, right? Yep. <laughs> and yeah. so, yeah. So, who gets to be white in different situations is changes over time. Absolutely, and it does sort of get to, you know, the age-old, you know, question of is is Judaism a race or is it a religion? Right. Yeah. Right. And um, yeah. And it. Yeah. So. And yeah. And, and for purposes of real estate in 1919, it was, it it you know got us off the hook. Although you know, interestingly, it never changed the anti-Semitic nature of Minneapolis, right. just that we could buy houses. Right, and it didn't mean we were liked anymore. Right, exactly. And that's the thing. Like, in no way 
in finding this research, I've been super careful to say, this in no way negates these experiences of anti-Semitism and violence and um, hatred and in no way says like anti-Semitism is not real or that it's not a really central pillar to white, white nationalism, which is, is very real. Like you cannot, you cannot separate those two out, right? No, ab absolutely. And so, um, in, so when we are talking about this, we are very careful to, to, you know, to make that clear, but on the, um, but it's important to recognize that housing is a really important thing, <laughs> you know, so if you can buy, if you, if you have access to capital and if you have access to stable, affordable housing, it changes everything in your life. And so that was an avenue that was open to Jews who were seen as white, that was not open to people who were, who were seen as black, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that's a key, key um, difference. And I think some of the, perhaps some of the tension, especially since, since the Fair Housing Act and, or since the 50s and 60s in mm -hmm. Minneapolis and the Twin Cities has been around that very question is that Jews keep saying, wait, we're in this together. And black people are like, uh, yeah, no, we're not. Right. <laughs> you know, that we are actually not because you could leave North Minneapolis and move to St. Louis Park, which was covered with racial covenants, and we couldn't. Right. And, and so that means that your families were able to invest in these, in, in these houses and pass that wealth down and everything that comes with it, you know, from right. access to education to access to more capital. And, um, and in fact, we have examples of Jewish developers who are putting the racial covenants in, into properties. And we have, we have a rabbi's house that has a racial covenant on it. And, and so it's just a more complex um, story. And I, and I, there's no question that there's some people who are like, yeah, we do, you know, so seeing some of the language, you know, we Jews, we are white, just in case we just go to temple. You know, we're just like you. We just go to temple. It's just, uh, so it's this very complicated story, right? You're saying race and religion are complicated? They're complicated, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Who would have thought it? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, yeah. and again, and yet you have, you know, and none of this negates the fact that you have the, the clan, you know, is grow is incredibly strong in and the silver shirts are incredibly strong and they're targeting blacks and Jews um, at the same time, but in very different ways. Right. 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 You know, and, it, and it's interesting. I've talked to, you know, a couple different people for, for stories for the series and, you know, I think back to my own, you know, lived experience. I was not I'm from Detroit originally and was not, born until the mid 70s but you know lived in detroit for a few years and then when my family was able we moved out to the suburbs you know mm -hmm. we, yeah. we we left detroit white flight was a mm -hmm. real thing people yep. moving from the city into sort of those first and second ring suburbs from the city and you know beyond and you know even moving further outside away from the city and you know and it's you know other people i've talked to you know happened to them in the cities they grew up to um they they saw it happening also so i don't know about the covenants necessarily and obviously your research does not necessarily extend nationwide but you know in terms you know some of that struggle seems to have happened i mean it, it goes beyond minneapolis though. oh yeah yeah this is a story you could tell about any any city and and to some degree you know the people who are moving out of north minneapolis in the 50s 
well, they're just making a rational decision. They want a two-car garage. They want, you know, a kitchen with new appliances. They want great, you know, financing terms. It's cheaper to move into a Rambler in St. Louis Park than to try to renovate your your old duplex that you're sharing with grandma and grandpa on the North side, you know, so it's a perfectly rational, understandable. It's not so much of like, Oh, we got to get out of this neighborhood. It's dangerous and we don't like it. Um, As much as it's like, you know, we want each of the kids to have a bedroom and, (laughs) you know, and I want a new refrigerator and, you know, it's, it's, it's a utterly rational decision that people made and they were in, they were able to make it. And it was actually, everything was pushing them towards that because, that's where the cheap financing was the new construction it's much cheaper to own a new house than to i own a house from 1922 i can tell you it is no it's not yeah right. that was the best uh financial decision to buy an old house so it looks really nice yeah, but it's... It's, yeah no i mean that's the thing upkeep maintenance that kind of thing on an older house becomes it's a different challenge yes certainly yeah. so you've been sort of doing the uh uh, the Jewish community speaker circuit a little bit mm-hmm. uh, lately yeah. uh, spoke to the uh, Cardozo Society event, mm-hmm. um, which I heard was very well attended. And people, it sounded like people could have kept you there for at least a couple extra hours asking questions. It was, uh, it was yeah. you know, about this work. And, you know, the JE spoke, did a JCRC part of their living room learning series mm-hmm. back in August. What? You know, when you're having these conversa- kinds of conversations with with Jewish groups like this, and uh, or at least predominantly Jewish groups, mm-hmm. how how is the message received, especially, you know, based on you know what's gone on since since late May? I've been very grateful at how open people are, you know, because this is a this is a, the some degree like I feel like. It's, it's not a third rail of Minnesota history, but it's pretty close in the sense of like, this is pretty central to community identity mm-hmm. and, and people have been very generous with us, I would say, in terms of listening to what we're saying. And, you know, and we've had, we've had some kind of nutty, some, and, and I'm not saying at these particular events sure. where people are very, but we've gotten some emails, let's put it that way. Um, some of the angriest emails that we've gotten have been from people in the Jewish community who feel that I am, that we collectively as a project are negating some central truths that they, that they hold. And, um, and people have told me that people have accused me of actually going to the property records office and whiting out Jews out of their property record, out of their covenants, because they knew it was there before, but you know, when I showed them the record and I say, it's not there, they said, well, I know it was there. You must have taken it out. You must have altered the record, Um, which I think is a really interesting, um, you know, like it speaks to that power of community belief, right? Mm -hmm. And um, that people feel very threatened at this idea. And I think, I think it really speaks in some ways to this, some, some really basic American ideas about merit or you know like that that we live in a meritocracy that things mm-hmm. are deserved and and it's it's this um you know it's this narrative of overcoming right great challenges and that and that is you know that that Jews faced these great challenges and they overcame this incredible discrimination and therefore it's possible for anyone in the American context to do the same thing I think that's part of it and part of it is like a personal a personal thing um so, but I, but I really, 
it's also, you know, my, that's why I've been trying to nuance this message as much as possible to, to say, look, you know, it, I'm not saying, like, I'm the first to say that, um, you know, we're, we're, in a, we're in a period of incredible intensifying anti-Semitism. And I, ne I the, the, the last thing I want to do is to um, whitewash any of that or to um, underplay any of that. In fact, I think we should be thinking about that more <laughs> and yeah. understanding that more and really confronting that because I think we're in a period where people are, you know, basically denying anti-Semitism, denying the Holocaust. Um, but at the same time, we have to, we have to have a better, if we're going to move forward in real solidarity um, against white nationalism and against white supremacy, we're going to have to have an honest accounting of the way race worked in our communities. Yeah. And, um, and so that, so that's kind of, um, and, and I've been really grateful to people like um, Laura Zell in the Jewish Community Relations Council who sat down with me um, and, and really dug into this and really, you know, really worked, you know, because our Robin Dorr show at the, you know, um, Jewish Historical Society of the Upper Midwest. Mm -hmm. I mean, early on when I started finding these things, these are friends of mine. And I, I sat down, I went to them and I was like, look, this is what I'm finding. I need your help, you know, to make sure that I'm that we're not creating more divisions, I guess, in um, that that we use this for for, for um, to create more understanding. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's um, you know I think it's an important what I hope people take away from the series that we're you know that we're putting out there. It, it's I think it's hard in a story like this where you have this struggle of obvious evil things that are mm -hmm. being done you don't want to think of yourself on the side of evil um, yeah. you want to think of yourself as an ally and i think i think it's hard because you you read this you read the story and you look at the history and you, you see man maybe we're not we don't get to be the hero this time do we yeah. and it, it doesn't mean we're the villain but it also, you know, it's, it's, you know, to use a lot of the, use, to use a lot of the language that's being used right now, you know, I, I've never thought I was racist, but it wasn't until recently that I understood that I wasn't necessarily being anti-racist either uh, and what that meant. And that's, that's a, right. some powerful humility to... Yeah. try to to try to sit there and learn that so I, I kind of hope that you know that's the i mean I, I don't expect everybody's gonna love what we have to say and what we have to put out there but i it doesn't mean it's not important in the the greater narrative of what's happening right now to to our community and to other marginalized communities mm -hmm. um it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And I try to offer, yeah, I think humility is the right, that is the right, that is absolutely the most important thing right now, you know? Um, and I try to offer my own family story, I guess, as a, as an example, you know, that, that, um, yeah, here I am, I'm standing up here talking about this, this racist history and saying, look, I am fully implicated in this, you know, my family, I have profited directly 
from these racist documents that um, brought more wealth to my family, which I have benefited from, and my kids benefit from mm -hmm. today. Um, am I a bad person? <laughs> you know, uh, like I, I, I would say my, my grandparents are not, were not bad people. My parents are not, you know, that's yeah. not the point. That is not the point. Um, the point is that we all have to be attentive. We all have to be, first of all, aware of these structures. White people have to shed this um, fake innocence, you know, that we have about this. Pay attention. Yeah. Open your eyes. It's not, it's not rocket science here. And, and then we have to do something about it, you know. It's, um, and, and that's where the real, instead of, you know, woe, you know, sort of hand-wringing, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's just really important for all of us. And it's not, it's not like a Maoist self-correction thing that I'm looking for, you know, so, um, <laughs> you know, that, um, but it's, but it's just, just being, being truthful, like being truthful. Cause, cause otherwise for people of color, it's like gaslighting all the time. Like, um, yeah, no, that's didn't happen. Not real kind of thing. So. Or, you know, it's not as bad as you thought it was, or it's not as yeah. bad as it seemed, or you yeah. get to acknowledge that maybe something was going on, but it couldn't have, you know, the, the downstream effects can't be as bad as everybody's saying. Yeah, yeah. Or you, you've had time to get over that by now, right? You know, right. Um, it's been 50 years since the Fair Housing Act was passed and then never enforced. Um, so, um, or never, never acted on after it was uh, passed. You know, it's, so. it's, har it's hardly the point, though. They passed the law. It's, that's yeah. enough. Yeah, that's enough. So, um, you know, yeah. So I, th I think that's, that's, that it's an ugly you know where it's it's an ugly history we're all that we're all implicated in and and i think you know and i think that's the, the the humility is the key like you said so a quick question about your own like you said your own grandparents history how did you how did you find out that their house was under a restrictive covenant when did you come across that it was early on when we started oh, really? doing, yeah, okay. when we started doing, I mean, I always had this sort of theoretical idea. I was like, yeah, I'm going to like marry my personal and perfect, you know, like my perfect. And then I was like, oh, oh, okay. I'm really going <laughs> to, really going to, yeah. Cause I started looking at the map as it was, as our data was coming in and I was like, wait, that's my grandparents' house. That's where I used to go every weekend to hang out with my grandparents. And, um, and then I started thinking back on all the stories that my, my parents would talk about the, the neighborhood. You know, my, my, my father in particular talks about the neighborhood where he was raised as being one of the best places in the world that he could have ever grown up. And he, he's, you know, I get a lot of my love of my hometown from my parents who, you know, have a lot of good reasons to, sure. to love this place. Um, but, you know, my, my dad always talked about, he was right near Lake Nokomis. He went swimming in the summer. He went skating in the winter. He went, his, his father didn't make it to eighth grade because he was orphaned when he was seven years old. And my father graduated from the University of Minnesota, you know, and, um, you know, so they went, they, there were solid schools. There was, and he was like, I could live at home and go to a big 10 university and right. get a degree, you know, and, um, 
yeah, it's, and he, you know, they never, they, he said, my mom got rid of me, you know, first thing in the morning, she said, you have to get out of the house. And I wasn't allowed to come back until dinner. You know, he could just roam around the neighborhood perfectly, right. you know, right. And, and, and so it's all that thinking about all that and thinking about the fact that it was legally off limits to anyone who was not white. Um, and then, yeah, so I mean, that's, so it was very early on. And then I started, you know, that, so and I, and I hope that by telling my own story that I can help other people do this, see their own connection, yeah. see themselves in this map and see, oh, my grandparents lived in this house, this part of town where it was redlined. And, you know, that explains a lot about yeah. why my parents struggled maybe or why. Um, so, and thinking about what did your school look like when you were growing up? What did the, you know, what did the local park look like? Yeah. So it's a lot to think about. It's a lot to, it's a lot to wrestle with. And that's, uh, I think I get, not as everybody, but I think certainly a lot of people are trying to wrestle with that. And how do we, how do we do better by our neighbors? And, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't change the history, but you can certainly, you know, learn and accept. Yeah. That's a start, right? Yeah. Feels and, like the very base level. Yeah, of but you know we can what? Do. But um white Americans have not even been willing to do that. No, no. Um, but I think and I and I think and I I hope this is where this research and this project and this community engagement is helpful in the sense that a lot of the there's a lot of great solutions out there. You yeah. know, when people despair. You just have to look to the people who've been doing the work in the trenches. Um, you know, I'm going to point to like Jewish Community Action. Yes. Great, great, organized, great, great fantastic, people. Yep. great people. If you talk to Dave Schneider, um, he will give you 10 policy things that you can do right now, you know, that we could do right now that would make a huge difference in people's lives. Yeah. You know, so, so it's, these are not unsolvable problems. We just have to have the political will to support them. And we're never going to have the political will unless we first acknowledge what happened, right? It, um, because otherwise, people just say, oh, well, you know, it's just natural. That's just the way it's meant to be. You know, it's just, that's how people are. Um, there's, we made this. We can, we can unmake it. And, and I hope that's what this history can help people get to. So as you learn this history, did your husband regret the move? You know, we could call him in and he can, <laughs> he can ask. He's been, he's been, um, so he's been directing the coverage at the, the he's the city editor at the Star Tribune um, for, and so he's been rather busy the last uh, I couple months. I would say it's, yes. been a, it's been a quite a few months for him. Yes, and he's had to do it all from our walk-in closet in our bedroom. Um, so, uh, there he hasn't always been happy with me let's put it that way <laughs> but i but i don't think he can blame all this on on me so um no, oh, no. i yeah no it's um he he sometimes you know sometimes in in march he says do we have to, do we have to live in minneapolis forever <laughs> so but in general i would say he has he has bloomed well where rooted so he he has become a minneapolitan in a okay. lot of ways 
Good. He, he doesn't hold the uh, the history you uncovered against you then. Well, he um, he himself has written a book on Minneapolis history now, um, King of Skid Row, about the um, the Gateway District in downtown Minneapolis. Um, that can be another podcast um, I episode. I would love to. I will have to read it and then talk to him about it's, that. It's a great book. He's a great storyteller. Um, lots of uh, lots of amazing history there. So. Yes. Well, excellent. Thank you for the, the plug of his book. All right. Last two questions. Um, we're going to go on a very light note. This is going to be okay. a full 180. Uh, what is your favorite Jewish food? Oh, latkes. That's easy. Oh. Yeah. Wasting no have... time. Okay. Yeah. No, no, no. Latkes, latkes. Um, yes. I mean, that's my, our favorite Hanukkah book in our family is latkes, latkes. Um, what is it? They cook me up a Hanukkah treat. So, okay. and I have, um, I have learned to make a fluffy, delicious latke over the last 20 years. I'm very awesome. proud of it. That's so. excellent. And what's your favorite Jewish holiday? Oh, Passover. Okay. How come? Yeah, so I need to, oh, I just love the storytelling. I love the food piece of it. I love, I, I have always loved Passover um, as, yeah, I, the, and I love, I love sitting around a table and, um, debating the questions and, yeah. and talking about the meaning of the story and how every year it has new meaning the story does oh so. absolutely and and hopefully by next year's we can all sit around a table together and oh, yes <laughs> please <laughs> uh kristen delgard thank you so much for joining us this week this is uh not always the most uplifting topic but certainly important and instructional as we all try to figure out how to do better and move forward in this uh unprecedented time oh well thank you so much i really enjoyed the conversation the who the folk podcast is part of the jew folk podcast network a product of jew folk inc please subscribe rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts if you have suggestions for other podcast guests please email them to me at editor at tcjewfolk.com for our other shows check out tcjewfolk.com slash podcast <laughs>